Feels like a good time to remind you Space Jam is not a 1980s movie. In honor of vacation, what modern star pairing would get you excited about an 80s remake? I'm Katie Rich, and this is not about True Detective Season 2 because I stopped watching it, but still, Rachel McAdams and Taylor Kitsch for Romancing the Stone remake. It's a good idea. Oh, that's a good one. I'm Dave with the Seven, who's going with Lethal Weapon with Dylan O'Brien playing the youngish cop to Michael B. Jordan's not old cop, but older cop. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with the remake of Spies Like Us, starring Andy Samberg and Will Forte. I'm really Ooh. coming around on Andy Samberg after seven days in hell. Uh, and I am David Ehrlich, and in keeping with the spirit of last week's episode, I'm going to go with Phoenix director and star Christian Petzold and Nina Haas in, uh, it doesn't really matter to me because all popular 80s movies are garbage, but let's... The hilarious romp! How about, how about Vacation? Let's get, let's get a remake of Vacation I was going with Weird World Science. World War II era Germany. Weird Science is a much better answer, and David, feel shame no, for not fine. thinking I, about I it. I didn't think about it. May God have mercy on your soul. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's awesome. awesome. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 80 for Tuesday, July 28th, 2015, still the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. What you just heard is a brand new remix of the Fighting in the War Room theme song, which I don't think has ever had an official name, so that's what it is. It's uh, from listener Jeff Schiffman, a.k.a. Jay Schiffma from the iTunes review we read a while back, and his friend Scott Post. They have a band called Assemble the Noise, and they made this amazing remix for us, which is really awesome. We're not really worthy. I'm yeah, just definitely throw it out not. There. No, you're no. not. Uh, <laughs> we're not worthy. Yeah, uh, I mean, Dave, who made the original theme song, may feel worthy, but I definitely do not because I did not. No, I didn't think about saying "fighting in the war room" over a vocoder, which was <laughs> the genius of that new remix theme. Yeah, so uh, not only do great listeners leave great reviews, but they uh, leave remixes of our theme song, which we are incredibly lucky to have. But, but we'll still take reviews, th- indeed. And on that note, I hear we have two of them this week. We do indeed. The first. From Juju Bad Etrigo says, Goodish show. Awesome spin-offs. <laughs> Great. The main podcast wow. is okay. Yeah. I only listen to it when they discuss something I'm particularly interested in. But I do Please list them so we know for the future. <laughs> so we know <laughs> we can get you back. to ignore them. Uh, but I do <laughs> love Storm Spoilers and the Thought Bubble. Dave and Joanna are awesome and very insightful. I feel well, like fuck the, you, Dave. the comic world just has more vocal fans, is what we see sometimes. With we these have reviews. silent fans. So please, if you are a big fan of independent cinema or just movies in general, um, <laughs> please let, let your voice be heard. I came for the Sans Soleil, but I'll stick around for the love, Guardians of I the would Galaxy. Love that you would be listener number one in my heart. Uh, the second review uh, is a little bit more on point, but. Some key omissions from Brian Danger says, "Come for Matt, but stay for Dave." Seven. Have you ever felt yes, like no yes. podcast out there can sufficiently scratch that podcast itch in just the right spot? Well, go no further because fighting in the war room will touch you in just the right spot. 
sensual. Three-dimensional podcasting. We reach out and touch you. It's okay, David. I didn't get mentioned in that one either. Yeah. Are we keeping track of points? Because I feel <laughs> oh. I feel like I'm winning. Wow. I'm, just, well, I'm feeling a, ru- know, I'm feeling a, a rush. A lot of people tend to say they used to think you were annoying and they don't anymore. No, I, Is that that kind of I know. It's a real no, thrill. He's the bread. He's Potato Mr. Patches. <laughs> oh, Potato Mr. Patches. That's what a review described him as. As a listener said, and it went to his head. He'd rather be dead than that kind of bread. Oh, Potato Mr. Patches. Making podcasts, history classes. If you know him, you'd call him a poem. He's got an opinion once the movie stops showing. Oh, Potato Mr. Patches. He's getting older, he's gonna need glasses. He's on Skype because he's writing all night. And he wants to make the podcast right. Oh, Potatoes Mr. Patches. He's got ten things left on his task list. When you need some clout, he'll make you shout for potato, Mr. Patches. Potato Patches. Damn it. This week sees, I believe, in limited release. David, limited release? End of the tour? I have no... End of the tour? It's an A24 film, so I'm assuming it's a slow build. Sure. Um... But yes, it's we're, we want to talk about this movie, The End of the Tour, which debuted at Sundance. Um, people were, per, I think, people were really ready to dismiss this movie. It is based on David Lipsky's book. Uh, he was a Rolling Stone reporter assigned to profile the acclaimed novelist David Foster Wallace, uh, and I believe this was right after Infinite Jest, Wallace's 1996 tome giant book. Well, the tour in uh, question a kind of pillar. is the press tour for that novel. Okay, so yes, perfect. So, But I don't know if that's 96 or 97, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, so David Lipsky met up with Wallace and followed him around as he was on this press tour, end of the tour. Um, and, and this film is directed by James Ponsolt and is just this, this character study. It's Most of the scenes are just uh, David Foster Wallace, plays by, played by Jason Siegel, and David Lipsky, played by J- Jesse Eisenberg, kind of hanging out and, and chatting each other up and trying to figure the other person out. And I think what I loved about this film was that there's no putting David Foster Wallace on a pillar, and there's no putting journalism or the profiling of an individual or or what journalism can achieve or what it can fail at. Um, It's not disgracing that or chastising it, and it's not putting it on a pillar either. It's a very even playing field as these two, you know, take... Dawn planes to the middle of America to pimp Infinite Jest or go to the city for a TV interview. It's a real rambling travelogue. And I thought this film, I mean, you do bring expectations to it. Whatever you think about David Foster Wallace, uh, there are no footnotes in this in this movie, but maybe maybe there are. <laughs> um, and I'd be interested to see. I think Katie and David have both seen this film. Um, and I remember walking out of Sundance and David feeling like, he had to admit this movie was good, but reluctantly, it felt very... He looked like he was in pain for having liked this film, but maybe mm. I'm recalling incorrectly. Maybe you've cha- had a change of heart. No, I, I just... I haven't really. I mean, I, I think it's a, a complicated film uh, to respond to uh, for a number of reasons. It's obviously very loaded. It's a very different reaction to someone who um, is cognizant of who David Foster Wallace was and is still very... 
aware of his place in our his rather hollowed place in our culture. I think uh, I would be curious. Why do you say that? Yeah, what do you mean? Well, by I, just, I think I'd be very. Uh, he's. I think he's revered by uh, most people, even those who would roll their eyes and scoff at anyone caught dead watching uh, reading Infinite Jest on the subway, which does seem like an inopportune place to read in a thousand-page book. Uh, but yeah, it would just hurt. Where your else back. do you get your reading done? <laughs> yeah, but uh, that's Kindles why now. we have Kindles. I, yeah, I, uh, reading on a Kindle, disgusting. Um, I, oh, shut up, old man. I <laughs> would be more curious to know what I might think of this movie if I saw it 50 years from now and uh, it didn't have that we'll circle back then. I, I think in a vacuum, what I took away from it more than anything else was the sense of inadequacy that one writer might bring to the table of another much more successful writer. I think even, even though Jesse Eisenberg is, uh, his performance is the least interesting thing in this movie because he's really playing uh, what feels like, uh, and maybe there are modulations that escape my my attention, but uh, what feels like a pretty expected Jesse Eisenberg performance, uh, and Jason Siegel obviously so playing against his reputation, this sort of thoughtful, giant, gentle, uh, I guess the gentle giant thing is sort of intrinsic to who he is, but it's it's a far cry from the genius of forgetting Sarah Marshall. Um, but he... F he, that. Um, Sorry, continue. The, well, it's different from forgetting Sarah Marshall. It, we can agree on that. Yes, uh, that's what I mean. It's, it, even if you think it's a, a genius as well, it's a different kind of genius. And I think his performance is quite touching. I do think that it's it does err on the side of um, of enshrining uh, David Foster Wall, even though they show eh. him, even though they show him uh, these sort of signifiers as being a regular guy, of being... Um, you know, uh, it's not about being a regular no, you know, guy. It's I'm, about I'm being trying a... to be, uh, you know, a little bit reductive here for people who have not seen. I don't need to lay out every detail of <laughs> what the movie shows about his life and how he chooses to live it and his demeanor. But uh, I think that it does. It, it, there's especially with a, a devastatingly bad choice that the movie makes at the end, um, involving a certain Brian Eno song and a very uh, milk toast feeling of like well isn't that special and uh i think it sort of demeans you are obsessed with brian eno music cues and they get to your core in a way that no, no one else would I, respond this was the to. first one that i seen you know since like the lovely bones uh i didn't really i i mean i i love brian eno but i just thought that like the tone of that song and how it's used uh it was so it was like this is what are the youtube video whereas the rest of the movie was like this is what are the speech <laughs> if that makes any sense it's uh katie it, there's a this is what yeah, are YouTube there's a video? terrible and very popular youtube video that was made out of uh the this is what are commencement speech that he gave at kenyon college and it i wrote briefly to this effect on film.com once upon a time but it it is made by people who just could not understand less uh the sort of the serial quality that he's going for in that speech. And I feel like the end of that movie, the end of this movie cheats towards that. While so much of their conversations, I think, really get at something interesting and meaty about um, how creative people and uh, can size one another up and, and the, the sort of collaborative, mutually beneficial dynamic that in the best of circumstances, as difficult as it might be, can blossom between them. Um, and I think Jesse Eisenberg's character really needs to get over himself. David and David Foster Wallace's character is a little bit too magical for my liking. Uh, but I don't respond to any of that. Wait, Katie, you step in here. What are, what are you <laughs> thinking about this film? Or, 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 and I'm interested because we all come at it, I guess, a little bit as, as journalists, as yeah. writers, and maybe we have a deeper investment or we'd be more skeptical off the bat. I certainly had kind of strange expectations 
for this film to t- kind of turn journalists into villains or turn them into one-note characters. And I was happy, you know, speaking to Jesse Eisenberg's performance, if you thought it was just another Eisenberg performance, I thought he did a good job of, of being both, being the intrusive journalist, being the villainous journalist, and being the the compassionate journalist and being the thoughtful journalist. And, and, and he was still a character against David Foster Wallace. That's why I didn't think he was such a, a magical entity, because not only is he ordinary, but there's room in, there's, there's space in a room for two people. Well, so I don't, it's, it's hard to talk about the journalist part of it because I think it's hard for me to know how other people would feel about it. Cause I've had the experience so often of interviewing people and, you know, wanting to be closer to them and admiring them and wanting to think that there was a relationship and not knowing if it really was there. And, you know, it's interesting for anyone who has interviewed a famous person they admired to watch that. But what I think I disagree with about David is that I don't think, I think the movie goes through pains to show how he's trying to be a normal guy and really acknowledging how David Foster Wallace is not a normal guy. Like one of my favorite scenes is them kind of having a fight in the car and David Foster Wallace basically admitting like he knows he's smarter than the people around him and he kind of hates himself for it and he's trying really hard not to be. And that's something that I think a lot of people, especially someone who's, you know, living in a tiny Indiana town, then having a conversation with this like New York City elite, like there's kind of envy going both ways on that, even though... David Foster Wallace would never actually acknowledge it. There's just all these complicated layers to the relationship you set up between these two people. And I don't know a ton about David Foster Wallace. I've read several of his essays. I have not read Infinite Chess. I don't know when I ever will. And so I found it interesting to kind of encounter this character who is revered. I mean, I knew so many guys in college who just loved him and, you know, wanted to be exactly like him. And to watch this person be kind of dismantled into both a regular guy and deeply not a regular guy and someone in conflict about that and both I think James Ponsold and Jason Siegel both do a really remarkable job of digging through that and then not really coming to a pat answer at the end I really I mean David I agree that the ending kind of goes for something big that may or may not work because it's different from the tone of the rest of the movie big but I really big. liked it like it's it's very uh I, I really thought that it was, um, it's a tough story to wrap up. And I think that the framing device is a disaster as well. Uh, the movie starts after David Falls. It's like filtered through memory. I think it would have just been so much more powerful had it been contained just to their interactions without this layer of reflection. Because the layer of reflection won't ever replace or compensate for what audiences bring to it with the knowledge that David Foster Wallace is dead. And the movie never mentions that. But I think that the movie the needs to know. Published, which is a strange detail when they are think... going with this framing device. Wouldn't be a strange detail if they didn't. I think you need to know that he dies and that he kills himself. And I think the movie introduces that essentially just to make sure the audience knows that and not assuming that the audience goes in knowing who David Foster Wallace is, which is, I think, another indication of this movie's fairly generous spirit toward anyone with any level of knowledge about David Foster Wallace or authors or book tours or journalism or anything like that. It's really trying to open it up as being a conversation about two men who come from different worlds and, you know, you bring of what of yourself you can to that. Yeah, I just wish that, and I really enjoyed it when it was working on that level. I just wish that it had uh, stayed more granular, stayed more immediate and really allowed them to chew on it in a way that I think... That's so weird because it mostly is. I mean, the, the framing device not, is but very minimal. It's not just minimal. the framing device. It's, it's all the things that the movie... Uh, sort of retroactively supports with the, with, um, to, to support the framing device, to support that emotional ending that it earns. Uh, it's all the things like that. Like what though? Like what, what little beats do they put in it's there? It's a general the, tone. Like force like I, I thought that the moments where the movie gets away from who David Foster Wallace is, is sort of this outsized character and is a little bit more on their level. I mean, again, I, we're talking about something that we saw seven and a half months ago now. 
but I saw it like a month yeah. ago. So. Yeah, uh, we're, we're not all on the same. I, I, I just felt like whenever <laughs> it went bigger, whenever nice it went try. broader, <laughs> it was uh, a lot less effective. Well, but I, I thought that's that what I like. I guess that's what I like about good. the movie. Then I like I like that the movie is granular most of the time because they're in very uh, drab environments on this book tour. It's really their idiosyncratic behavior being put under a microscope when they're either hanging out in a hotel room or eating at a fast food joint or just talking about life. You know, these, you, you wonder how someone like David Foster Wallace could write the things that David Foster Wallace writes and to hear him speak in that mode when they're just chit chatting in the lobby of a hotel uh, and, and talking about how he's worried about like technology or he's worried about culture or he's fascinated by sports. He loves tennis and all these little things. Um, and, and you see the person and how it kind of spews out of him and how he can't – there's no damn restricting him and, and this rush of knowledge and this rush of thought I, and how he also repels I, away I like, from the world. I like this movie. Don't get me wrong. I just felt like it was – it really struck me the wrong way. Uh, when it felt like they were using the raw ingredients of his life and the, the sort of echo of his words that David Lipsky had, uh, that have now been gone through so many filters um, through David Lipsky's book and then through Fair. the screenplay, uh, to go to these very hallmarky, bigger emotions. I thought it was a really nasty taste to leave in my mouth, and the movie deserves better than that because I think it's a, it's the, the the work of the actors is good, and for the most part, um, the parts that felt to me more faithful. Uh, which is not necessarily the same as more honest, uh, did happen to feel more honest in this particular case. Uh, but it's a, fine, um, it's a fine movie. It's one that, if I see on cable, uh, I'm sure will <laughs> stay on. That's everything for you. Uh, uh, so let's wrap up here. Yeah, wait, I don't know if I oh. want to know if we sold Dave. Yeah, uh, a little bit. I'm having the same problem I'm having with this new book that came, came out called Gonzo Girl, where... Cheryl, uh, Cheryl Della Pietra, who was uh, Hunter S. Thompson's assistant in like the 90s, wrote a fictionalized account of her time as his assistant in the 90s. And like, I want to read it because I love Hunter S. Thompson, but I kind of don't because it's a fictionalized account that's centered from this girl's perspective. And it's about this girl's, you know, uh, what she did before publishing her first novel, which is this. And it just like takes this meta thing that isn't about the writer I like anymore. So I guess I'm having the same trouble with this movie where I guess I'll give it a chance, but because I'm so well, that's what the I actual don't history think, of the writer. It doesn't feel I, like the fictionalization. It doesn't feel like fear and loathing or something. Well, uh, right. But like it, to, there's a good there's a balance that I actually want between that, because if I want actual informa- factual information, I'll go to a documentary. But there's something about seeing a portrayal of a person that you really admire, but it's also through the filter of the point of view of whoever's movie it's in. So, so Yeah, that's that's exactly the reason I really like End of the Tour, because it doesn't feel like it could be a documentary about all the stops and David Foster Wallace's journey here on this planet. It feels like a slice of his life through two different lenses. You know, we get to ebb and flow. We get to go back and forth, and I think James Ponsell really balances that quite well through conversation and through visual filmmaking and and all these environments they go to and seeing how uh, these two characters interact in all these in, in suffocating places and sprawling uh, 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 winter vistas you know they they really run the gamut in this film and I kind of adore I it but if you think on James Ponsold <laughs> as a 
filmmaker of any uh, interest whatsoever. Well, that's a different yeah. conversation because you also didn't like Spectacular Now. I loved yeah. it. Smashed yeah. is it's pretty good. I like Smash. It sounds like this movie needed needed some footnotes. Yeah. I, right? I, I hope maybe yeah. maybe that's the DVD for you. The, yes. the Blu-ray still has a purpose for David Foster I Wallace I think movies. literally the opposite, that it is so much better without footnotes. But uh, <laughs> maybe Dave can see it and report On that. your Kindle, it'll play. Or your Fire. It's going to play Amazon so great Fire. on my Kindle Fire. Anyway, the end of the tour, <laughs> it, it comes out this week, July 34th. Or 34th. 34th. It's July my mind. Um, and if you think sentimentality is hallmark, you'll probably agree with David. But if you're like me and smart, you'll like it. If you have it. feelings, you'll like it. And I know she'll be the death of me. At least we'll both be numb. And she'll always get the best of me. The worst is yet to come. But at least we'll both be beautiful and stay forever young. This I know. This I know. She told me don't worry about it She told me don't worry no more We both knew we can't go without it She told me you'll never be alone oh, I can feel my face when I'm with you But I love it But I love it oh, I can feel my face when I'm This summer, we're just getting a ton of documentaries about individuals, very specifically. Things that come to mind. Amy, kind of an extraordinary... Another A24 movie, actually. Hey. Uh, the Amy Winehouse documentary. This podcast has been brought to you by A24. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Uh, we should tour. get them on, on board as, as sponsors. Um, that might be a conflict of interest. Anyway, Amy Winehouse documentary. It really blew me away. I was not really a big fan of hers while she was still with us. Um, and this kind of revealing portrait of her all through archival footage uh, from the director of Senna. I mean, it just it really kind of blew my mind. Um, and I recently watched, uh, oh my god, I was about to call it Listen Up Marlin, but that's listen not... Listen to me Marlin. <laughs> listen to me Marlin, the oh my god. Listen Up Philip sequel. Yeah, listen... <laughs> um, another, another archival footage documentary with a very specific, you know, these tapes of Marlon Brando speaking and, and taking us through his own life, just never before heard, never before seen. It was really fascinating. Look at someone I thought I knew or I thought I knew enough. And it really, both of these films and several others that have come over the summer, and maybe we'll bring them up here, have, have kind of raised a question to me about documentaries, specifically about people, and whether or not fame is enough of a reason to make a documentary about a person. You know, what... The, we, we touched a little about this on our, our Kickstarter segment a few weeks ago about um, the idea of clickbait documentaries and something, a movie that I will... I'll never shut up about. This Bill Watterson, the illustrator <laughs> behind... Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, dear Mr. Watterson. Dear Mr. Watterson. Have we raged about this on the pod? I feel like we yeah, have we because I was have. really mad. I think when we I have watched that. awful film. I'm sorry to yeah. whoever made can it. You, I can really quickly reiterate like, what was so awful about it. What's awful about it is so this this comes back to my point here. Is fame enough to make a documentary? Well, in this case, it was. We love Bill Watterson and we love uh, Calvin and Hobbes, and we want to know what's he what is he all about? What's his story? We, we should make a film about this person because he's famous and he's he's really contributed a lot to culture uh, and the art of, of cartooning. But you know what? This film has nothing on its mind. It's just what happened in his life. They didn't get an interview with him. I mean, he's he's kind of a recluse. He doesn't talk to people. They didn't try and get him. Um, that wasn't the journey of the film. It was just talking to a few people who've worked with him. 
uh, not trying to get any information. It's a lot of talking heads talking about how great he is. And you can't make a film about someone just talking about how great they are. That's not what they contributed to the world. Make a, you have to make a film that's about this, this person or, or carving out a new angle well, on them. Yeah, or, about something that you need to have a focus and not just make a straight biography if you're just dealing with like a famous person. Right. That's so true my, my for question I was, uh, yeah. feature films and documentaries, yeah, okay. so just to I, be clear. Bio, yeah, biopics suffer well, from the I same problem. Like, why do we make these films? I think that I, I'm, I, I like what Katie just said. I think that uh, it's true for fiction films as well. I mean, it's all about the execution. I think, uh, you know, you get a film about Pearl Harbor, for example. Uh, intrinsically, nothing is, like, is intrinsically interesting. I mean, you can get um, something that presents facts you didn't know, and, and they can privilege those facts so you can't find them elsewhere, and it could be interesting to learn them, but it doesn't necessarily make for good filmmaking. Pearl Harbor could have been uh, the subject of a phenomenal film, and there's like Torah, 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 which is probably a step in the right direction, if uh, not many decades before the Michael Bay film. But, you know, you think, how do you make something like that as, as bad, as dull, as, as every every person or every event or every fictional story can be uh, told in the right way. So I think it's a roundabout way of saying to your question before I pass the mic that no, fame nor anything else is enough to, in and of itself, justify a movie. But it sounds like you actually agree with that statement that if you are famous enough, if you have made some sort of impact, that a film could be made on your life if the execution is correct. My, my, My tough question to all of you is... Is there any point where it's just like it doesn't matter how famous you are? There's there's a certain point where there's nothing going on that there is no narrative. Well, no. Is that possible? No. If you're that I, famous, I went, I, I went to the uh, Denver Art Museum uh, recently. They opened a new exhibit on uh, flowers. Uh, they're they're theming for flowers. Their central exhibit is about Renaissance painters and flowers, but the entire art museum is themed with flowers. And their video installation is just this woman who raises flowers in England like all day that's what she does she's either you know like planting new flowers or trimming them or making special mixes and uh i just watched her do this on four screens for like i don't know 10 minutes absolutely plotless and it was a riveting documentary about this woman more so than flowers this so you're saying nothing happened I'm saying nothing happened, but it's like, it's not so much about fame. It's like everybody has, if you have a good documentarian or somebody who knows what their art is saying, everybody has the capability of having a movie in it. But I don't think that like fame is a line that differentiates people worthy of making documentaries of them or not. Yeah, I think I agree with Dave, actually. I don't think that fame having happened to you is going to make you more interesting than someone under your exact same circumstances who hasn't had fame happen to you. I mean, like, do you want to watch a Vanessa Hudgens documentary? Right. I do think about that sometimes. I I wasn't I don't think I was saying anything that disagrees with anything that Dave just said either. No, no I, I don't think okay. I'm disagreeing. No, Katie's people. choosing to agree with Dave to throw him some some points. Well, but I, I'm I'm saying to Dave, I would rather watch the documentary about the flower lady than a documentary about Vanessa Hudgens. I think basically no matter what. Right, but you would watch a story of Vanessa Hudgens' life if it was nested in a documentary about like leaked celebrity naked photos, because that would be focused around Please the specific part. Don't make me watch that film. Well, I mean, don't make that film, Patches. Don't make I me make not. that film. But I do think Vanessa Hudgens is an interesting person to bring up because there might be, 
I mean, how did she become famous? Disney stars, yeah, the, the, the naked photos, you know, there's something to how silly it seems to make a Vanessa Hudgens documentary, but, but the fact that she became important seems to vindicate any potential documentary the attempt i think least. you're 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 then accepting that any celebrity any person can become important by being famous and i don't think that's true i don't i think there are a lot of important famous people but i don't think that fame necessarily confirms pop culture importance so not every famous person is part of the zeitgeist in a direct way in a re- or a reflective way that should totally. be chronicled as some sort that of historic document Totally. I would I watch a hundred documentaries about the Kardashians because they are incredibly important to pop culture, but that, I mean, that doesn't make them like smart people, but there are a lot of famous <laughs> people. Like, I don't want to watch one about Paris Hilton. I don't think that's interesting. House of Wax. We already have it. <laughs> um, this documentary. <laughs> ju- just to wrap up here, you would watch 100 documentaries about Kim Kardashian? I said the Kardashians. I think okay. if you do the expanded, I think Kim might not. The expanded be. universe. Yeah, the expanded Kardashian universe, and then it ties Kim over Kardashian support the galaxy. Like thirty, thirty documentaries. I mean, yeah, but if you get Kanye in there, forget it. Like that's a hundred no. documentaries easily. Spy movies. We're going to talk about spy movies. Um, That was a great intro. Yeah, thanks for stopping uh, short of uh, copyright infringement. No problem. Yeah, what was that song? I was just riffing. I like scat singing. Everyone does. So I wanted to talk, you know, with the release of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, completely unrelated to the music I was just singing. Um, I, I wanted to talk about the modern spy movie. We're getting a few, actually, in the next few months. We'll see Man of Uncle. Man from Uncle. Man from Uncle. Man of Uncle. The the porn spinoff man who in your uncle. Um, We got Spy, a movie we did not review, much to the dismay of one of our listeners, who for some reason that sticks in my mind. uh, I still haven't seen it, so I still feel bad about it. Oh, you should feel bad about it. Funny movie. David liked it. David. Which? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and then we also <laughs> later in the year we're getting Spectre, the twenty fourth yes. Bond movie, I believe. Dave, I just look at you when you uh, when I say things like that. It's up there. It's a uh, mega uh, franchise. Uh, go- How are you not on that? Well, I mean, I could tell you everything about it Please except do the not. numeric little entry. Oh, that's uh, you don't know the basic foundational information. Anyway, so we're, obviously we're well. Getting, do we count never saying that? Okay, no. other <laughs> conversation. <laughs> we're not counting that actually. Um, so spy movies, they're 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 still a coming. But I do wonder in this day and age if um, the the mo- what the modern spy movie is and how that will change as spying becomes something that seems more uh, I don't know prevalent in our in, in our country spying on ourselves and this kind of big brother aspect of spying and what the NSA That is a does. wide net you're casting there. Well, if you're talking about digital surveillance It's segment 3. Well, it's a very oh, wide right. net. But I I also have found that I think spy movies of recent year have kind of purposefully thrown back their retro you know we have tinker taylor soldier spy which uh, carves out a different era of, of spydom we have these super spy movies like kingsman from earlier this year david's favorite movie Love um <laughs> and and which of course is going for this kind of uh this this retro comedy spy flavor and the mission impossible movies are all throwbacks in some way um back to the original television show and um even rogue nation as we'll probably get into in our review later this week 
kind of throws back to the original Mission Impossible, which was throwing back to Hitchcock because of De Palma. Um, so it's all very interesting. I, I wonder what the modern spy movie is and if that makes any sense to you guys and you. how it refracts with time. I, the modern spy movie is the Fast and Furious franchise, which is hey, you're out of your fucking mind. Pieces. But continue. No, no. I mean, I mean, if we're talking about, uh, I don't know, the spy uh, thriller, that is definitely they're like splitting in two different directions because the Fast and the Furious has realized that they could throw something nebulous like cars and international terrorism and pick off all the James Bond things. James Bond has to roll back on uh, his own personal mythology, but it's all sort of making up for the fact that the height of the spy movie was during the Cold War when we had actual, you know, people and a nation that was, you know, equal to us in technology that we could sort of fight off. We had, like, a credible threat. I'm not sure that I would classify any of the modern, like, sort of, I don't know, government versus terrorism movies as spy movies just because they feel more like what the political thriller has become Hmm. or what the uh, American examination of our foreign policy through, uh, like, Oscar uh, bait drama has become. I would say, like, our traditional spy movies have gone, like Mission Impossible has, to, like, can we throw huge stunts at people while basically fighting a shadow organization that stands for nothing real because this is fun at the movies. You're kind of referencing something that I said off the podcast in preparation, which was that maybe Zero Dark Thirty is our modern spy movie is a different type of mode than these kind of super spy agent movies that are more fantasy or these throwbacks like Man from Uncle uh, and Kingsman that are tapping into the the or, or well, like Austin Powers, you know, the same kind of era, that swinging spy movie. Zero right. Dark Thirty well, seems go... to be something coming from now and reality, but still feeling like espionage, spycraft, as they say. You could like go further back to like the pre, you know, I mean, Cold War stuff, like, you know, a Manchurian, original Manchurian candidate. Is that a spy movie or is that a political thriller? Can it be That's both? From... I, I think Possibly. that's a political thriller. I mean, our there's protagonist no spy. is not the spy. There's no spy. No. Well, there's really a... a spy. Well, there's, there are tons of spies. I don't want to ruin the Manchurian candidate, but somebody you love from another television show that you like I, that features I, murder I... mysteries <laughs> turns out to be a major spy. Yes, okay, fair. But it's not about... SB, well, okay. It's not about the process of spying, the Manchurian candidate. Right, it's right. It's about right. someone uncovering. It's, it's an investigate. Yeah. This I mean, is a, this which, it's like it's a square rectangle, rectangle square thing. You I can know. have a spy in your movie, and it's not a spy film. I don't really, yeah, I think it's well, more I mean, political I don't thriller. Think, yeah, yeah. I, I also, like, maybe I'm a, an originalist when it comes to the definition of spy, but I find nothing... Um, spying is as much about uh, the, the sides involved in the intention than it is the acts. I think that while the acts perpetrated in Zero Dark Thirty could be spying in another context, the um, hunt for information, uh, the surveillance involved in trying to find Osama bin Laden uh, for the country for whom you work uh, out in the open, essentially. Um, you know, they, they know where she lives. They know what she's doing. Um, well, no, she's... there are scenes where her, her cohorts, where Edgar Ramirez is like on the, in Islamabad spying, right? He's kind of in deep trying to get 
uh, information from people in the Taliban. That's spying. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily she's, know where to draw the line. I uh, and she's maybe, the M. Maybe there is an objective standard out there that I'm not aware of. It's entirely possible for me currently. The definition of walk right off now. is sort of you know like pornography in that I know it when I see it. And when you <laughs> said that. Uh, when you and you see it a lot. Zero, right? if, and when you said just that to be clear. 30 was a spy movie, I bristled. Um, so I, I have trouble accepting it as such. But I, I, Anything but Spy Kids is not a spy movie. But can you David's double down opinion. on this idea of how the spy movie might change in the modern world or compensate for technology? Well, I guess, so as we define spy movie here, are the Born Identity movies spy movies? Because they seem to be drawing out of a modern paranoia, a modern fear of, of enhancement in technology, but over the course of that trilogy may actually lose their, their spy quality. Right. Would you regard those movies as spy movies? In your, in your see it when you, or know it when you see I it? I guess, definition? I mean, I think of Zero Dark... I don't know. See, I, I just, uh, Miriam Webster's defined spy as, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, work for a government or other Classic. organization by secretly collecting information about enemies or competitors. In that case, Zero Dark Thirty would apply. I think my definition tends to be more based on genre than it does on, um, the literary definition of what this work entails. Cause certainly if I were Maya in Zero Dark Thirty living in Pakistan doing <laughs> what she did, I would feel like a spy. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't translate that way on screen, necessarily. Do the Jason Bourne movies feel like spy movies? At some parts, yes. At some parts, no. He does do... Inf he infiltrates... He's not really serving a country, but he's serving himself in spying. I mean, for me, and this is just a me thing, I, th I suppose, um, the, one of the big definitions of a spy movie, one of the things that really tips me off that we're playing in that milieu is this feeling of being cut off from any sort of safety net, from the protection of your government, really hung out to dry... Um, and with nothing but information trade on. I think of the best spy movie ever made by a significant margin in my mind is Army of Shadows by Jean Melville, uh, and that feels like a spy movie in part because of how they are operating um, on their own accord, and, and there is a support network there, but it is entirely their own, and uh, they have to look out for themselves. Likewise, Mission Impossible, the movies, which no one would argue are not spy movies in the traditional sense, um, each movie takes pains to isolate the, I mean, it's in their credo of disavowing any knowledge and, you know, only a few people know what they're up to at any time. Um, and God forbid those people be terminated, then what are you going to do? Uh, I think, like, that that's the one unifying factor for me. And I think that uh, as identity is more fluid now than it's ever been before uh, in the digital age, I think that the opportunities for spy movies only go up, but the potential is going to be more difficult to wring from them because it's very difficult to make uh, stuff in the... I think there's a, one of the reasons that we still make our spy movies about, you know, set in the Cold War era, like Tinker Tailor, like The Man from UNCLE, is because uh, they don't have the interference. They still allow this sort of the charm, this antique charm of old-school spycraft rather than just being able to be like, uh, who is this person? We're not going to find him. Like, oh, I just tweet-searched... Tweet and coordinated and whatever. Yeah, that's how they find everyone in ISIS now. Exactly. They just search on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll have a robot spy movie in the future. But I, I, I think you're hitting, <laughs> hitting the nail on the head a little bit, David, with um, 
just as as time passes and movies inflate, it's difficult. And I'm I'm always surprised that the Mission Impossible movies managed to do this. And I think they blew up. They kind of came back down. But it's a, it's about intimacy. It's about procedure. It's about small action leading to big consequence. And it's something that I wonder if the Bond movies will eventually just not feel like spy movies at all. And they kind of already have drifted away from that. Certainly during the Roger Moore years, they om- they barely feel like spy movies. I mean, Moonraker is is absurdity, and uh, uh, it's, yeah, it's not, there's see, not much spying involved, but I wonder if, we're, if the, the... We're at different ends of the Venn diagram, yeah. because I would say that the Roger Moore movies, even when they were plotless, were like unabashedly spy movies. Like, I'm much more on the genre side, where it's like, I don't... I, uh, I'm not sure when, but sometime around, oh God, I don't know, maybe the formation of the CIA in America, it became like this old one person single act can change the world through globe hopping and gadgets and uh, being suave or, you know, having some sort of skill that you've learned, uh, be it like a language or gambling or like something weird like that. And, like, now, even if we go back and re-examine old Cold War themes through, like, a serious lens because there's not a present threat and we have hindsight of 2020 to make political thrillers like Tinker Tailor Soldiers by feel more real, that just, that takes it out of what I would consider, like, the spy genre. Hmm. Like, all the spy spoofs, all the Liam Neeson spy spoofs are spy movies because they have the genre hallmarks well, there's one to me. Well, one Spy Spoof. Spy Hard, the theme from Spy Hard. Uh, and there the are, theme from uh, Spy the Hard. Wait, you guys both said Liam Neeson, right? Oh, I'm not sorry. being crazy? I, I, oh, sorry. Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> I Leslie thought we were Nielsen talking about Taken as a Spy Spoof, and I was like, that is a fascinating magic, idea. Magic. Expand on that. And then I realized... <laughs> yeah. I will about. never live that one down. <laughs> Moving on from that immediately. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for correcting me on the podcast, though. It's like a whole bunch of tweets. I was just confused. I couldn't figure out where Liam Neeson got involved. Taken, <laughs> though, is kind of a spy movie. He was I, well, in the Black that's, Ops. That's what I was thinking. I was like, okay, Taken, spy movie, not spoof, though, anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's as close to a spy movie as, like, the second, third Jason Bourne movie, I think. Right. Yeah, I yeah. mean... I also think that our politics have become so complicated and the enemies so amorphous or, or on, uh, you know, the, the, it's not as easy as like the Russians are bad, you know, go infiltrate them. It, you know, it would be hard to make a movie about spies infiltrating ISIS or spies infiltrating whatever the fuck is going on in, um, you know, uh, Pan-Asian civil wars, that sort of thing. And I think about um, Syriana. Man, I had to see Syriana three times before I started to really make sense of that movie, which was I think I would regard it? as a spy movie. Did you want to right. watch Syriana? Yeah, was it worth seeing the three times? No, it wasn't probably. <laughs> Why did you do it? I saw Syriana once in theaters. I saw Syriana once on DVD. I ran it myself, and then I showed And then once people. with the subtitles on, Syriana. because I finally realized. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And I was just like, God, this movie is so comp- I mean, it is really you good. You overcommitted to Syriana. I give a lot of credit to Alexander Desplat's score. There are individual scenes in True Detective Season 2 that are more confusing than the whole of Syriana. <laughs> Unnecessary <laughs> diss. Unnecessary Not- diss. But do, do you think that movies can't tackle modern spying or... We, we, the spy movie will start losing traction and just become adventure or action 
because of I mean, politics? Is that a fair... Yeah, no, I think that's definitely why the split's happening, because it's hard to make uh, the enemies we face now look fun. It either has to be very serious, or you run the risk of basically, like, punching down uh, in just, like, a global sense, because, it, like, visually, it's either, you know, about who controls the land the oil's on, because that's basically what we're having the fight about, or it looks like, you know, drone attacks on weddings by accident and becomes homeland. Mm-hmm. So it's like the, the, we need, that's why, you know, uh, Bond is, A, went back to the origin story and Inspector is going to return to a massive evil organization just like Mission Impossible does to basically get as far away from all the current setting things as possible. Uh, but don't well, you think that this, the, our, our complex modern world and uh, everything that comes along with it makes it particularly fertile ground to make a spy movie? I mean, it just seems like the smallest spark could ignite. Um, not, not, you know, it's not the nuclear terror that ruled the Cold War era necessarily, but that their threats are coming so many shapes and sizes these days. Um, and... I, I look at a I look at a film. I look at the trailer for a film like Sicario, which is probably by no means a spy movie, and I just feel like there's ground for this everywhere. You know, I kind of can't believe they haven't made a movie. Or I think they were talking about it for a while, but the uh, Russian spy got killed in London and got poisoned. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. Just happened, thinking like, about that, uh, yeah. Lit- Litvinenko. Lit- Litvinenko, yeah. They've been trying to make a movie about him. I think. I think Cumberbatch yeah. was involved, maybe, and. Depp was even attached but to there, that. I, I wonder if the money complicates it. Because, like, you know, are there a lot of... I think of... Uh, this is extrapolating to a far degree, but think about what just came out recently, a very sensible story that really shouldn't have been a big deal about pixels making changes at the script, say, script stage in order to appease the Chinese because the Chinese box office is the second biggest box office in the world and they need the film to perform well there. Um, at the same time, if you take that to... China would, would, for some of the reasons that were so in their pocket, make a perfect setting for a spy movie. Right. And not oh, just yeah. Macau and its glitzy glory like it was in Skyfall, but, you know, a hardcore spy movie set in China. But nobody with the pockets to, to fund that, to really make it interesting, to put it on the world stage, um, is going to take that risk these days. And so I think, right. you know, in these things, the, the money, the politics, the spy movies, <laughs> they're all inextricable from one another. I don't see any reason well, why a production company can't make a Chinese spy movie on a budget. They well, mean, the interview... I mean, no one's ever going to distribute that in China it, anyway. It the just, interview it didn't go so well uh, for the Yeah, North come Korean on. China is not North Korea. I mean, I it has its problems, but... No, it just, it just wouldn't... It wouldn't be about anything. It couldn't be about anything and exist. So therefore, it just has to be like you why, know, Transformers I mean, why Age of Extinction you, and just happen in China. Yeah, no, you can just you can make a movie about Chinese spies and not distribute in China. I mean, lots of American movies don't get distributed oh, in China. Oh, uh, well, I'm saying d- d- yes, but then like you're already dealing with uh, what has to be a mid-budget movie. It can't be yeah, a big-budget like, movie the and not play an Asian market. The Fifth Estate was a bad movie, but That's you can a make movie a movie that you just on, made up, though. You can make a movie on that budget and not have to distribute it in China. Yeah, maybe and make Snowden your money back. will pick up the. Uh, yeah, well, Snowden. I mean, I'm they're definitely not playing that right out in now. China. <laughs> Snowden, the movie, is so dead on arrival. Uh, I, it will be hilarious to listen back to this if it wins Best Picture or something. <laughs> and, and I'll go ahead and make the, the same. The pictures of Joseph Gordon Levitt as Edward Snowden make me cackle every time. It it's, looks awful. It's, but it's you know what? Open mind. It could be great. I am a big. I've gotten several. 
drunken arguments with my parents this weekend about why Edward Snowden's a great guy, and he oh did my a lot for us. God, you are such a classic millennial fighting. With Thank you. About I thought about my with my parents about this a few weekends ago as well. Um, it's a great feeling. I, there was no fighting between <laughs> my parents and I about. How fucking awful the Oliver Stone movie about Edward Snowden is going to be. We can all agree. We're From a family again. Family <laughs> uh, well, I, I, just to wind down here, you know, as, as things get terribly complicated. Pick, pick your favorite spy movies. Uh, yeah, about, you, you can. What is your favorite? Oh, favorite spy movies of all time? Oh, shit, I wasn't actually I love that Dave says right. that and Sneaker, cannot sneakers? come with an answer. Sneakers? Sneakers is, no. is pretty damn good. No. Sneakers is not a spy movie. It is a heist movie. I see a, an extreme difference here. Oh, oh, my God. See, this is why we should have this started is, with this and then, uh, before we got to it. I mean, you got to go with, like, the, the, the classic Bond movies. Yes. I mean, they, uh, but and then, like... If you're going to go for, like, a comment on it, I would go with the the 80s movie Gotcha about uh, when Germany was split in two. I, um, uh, I'm going go. with duplicity. Corporate well, spies. Okay, so Ooh, that's good, too. Duplicity yeah. is a perfect example of what, if, if the spy movie will grow and expand and prosper in the future and uh, take on homeland spying on each other, I think duplicity is a great movie to look at because you're, you're not going to offend anyone. Big businesses warring yeah. with each other. No, and b- it's business, still slick and it's real spying. Corporate, corporate spying yeah. is a great setting for a modern spy movie. I mean, they should make, about, I mean, duplicity made no money, so no one's making any more, but they should. Well, think about the story that was in the New York Times this weekend about the secret of Thomas English Muffins. Yes, <laughs> that was such a good story. There <laughs> uh, only seven people in the world who know it, and one of them just defected to hostess. Uh, that sure it could make the it could have the makings of a courtroom drama or anything else really certainly a comedy but uh, yeah I mean corporate espionage that's it's ripe for shady nah, yeah. underground parking lot deals. I'm picturing something like The Wolf of Wall Street but with spies. I so I was imagining what... Alexander Payne making his uh, corporate espionage drama at <laughs> Hostess. Um, well, the other the other side of where I think the spy movie genre will prosper. I mean, again, we've kind of touched on this, is is just dredging up history, and I think Munich is a standout of, mm. of recent years, just mm. about, like, where spying and historical drama can kind of cross over. And, are they I mean, spies? Or they are, are they... spies. They're, they're spying for information and executing... Well, people, but uh, <laughs> just say, that's mostly what also plans to plots to kill those people, uh, bombs and phones and such. You know, I think that's right. a spy movie. All right. So wait, wait, we're ending. Uh, wait, Katie needs to go, right? No, I said duplicity. Oh yeah, yeah that's right. And uh, I loved it. David. Uh, David the, gets a vote. David gets to vote, and he's pick, ahead, he David. picks vacation. Sorry, Before I helms. make some sort of weird summation. As what? Say again. You know, you picked uh, uh, Herman Melville. Yeah, uh, as the best movie. spy film ever. Not Herbie Melville. Uh, Herbie Melville. Jean-Pierre Melville. Max Headroom. Army of Shadows. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. my god, yeah. I mean, it's not even close. That's, uh... Well, there you go. Yeah. Wow. It's on the so Criterion Blu-ray. Check it out. I think our listeners need to go to uh, fightinginthewarroom.com yes. and tell us what a spy movie is, because apparently we None can, can uh, agree. figure it out. And also, please sign my petition.org petition for SALT 2. Thank oh, you. Oh, wow. I like salt. <laughs> this time starring Tom Cruise. <laughs> but in drag. That's it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday talking about spies and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which doesn't have a fun abbreviation like Go to Call, as far as I can tell. But I haven't seen the movie yet, so who knows? Rogue Nation. 
We will also take submissions for better titles for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I'm senior writer for Esquire.com, uh, where you should read David Foster Wallace's story, The String Theory, about tennis. It's very good. Uh, and I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches, and we have a website, fightingintheworm.com, where Dave mentioned you can leave us suggestions for your favorite spy movie or suggestions for alternate titles for Rogue Nation, or you can share articles and leave comments and be angry or happy or whatever you want, fightingintheworm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the associate film editor of Time Out New York and the editor of Large Little White Lies magazine. Uh, you, what was I going to shout out to? Um, oh, I was going to say... I'm in filmmakers? No, I wasn't going to shout out to anything. I was just going to say, why wasn't it called Mission Impossible The Syndicate? Seems a lot simpler than Rogue Nation. Anyway, uh, you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich, and you can find all of us together hugging uh, on Fighting in the War Room on Facebook. Facebook. That's the operative word there. Facebook. <laughs> I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell my first name DA7E, which is also my Twitter handle. I write about geeky things on Latino Hyper Review at geek.com and Forbes.com. I also do the spin off podcast, which apparently are the greatest thing on this feed, at fightingintheorroom.com slash comics and fightingintheorroom.com slash godspoilers. That was a really unfair shout out to our. Uh clearly more beloved sister podcast which i also like a lot uh i'm katie rich you can find me at vanityfair.com or on twitter at katie rich k-a-t-e-y-r-i-c-h twitter is also the place where you can answer this week's lightning round question which i apparently uh, altered in my tweeting of it so now that's the question what was it patches or dave yeah patches with me this is dave's part <laughs> i can never remember which one of you does this stuff I was gone for two weeks. I know it's so hard. In honor of vacation, what modern star pairing would get you excited about an 80s remake? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. <laughs>